The first, hi Hyman, is prep. Uh, and Hyman Scott uh, is a, a faculty member at UCSF, as he mentioned earlier, is primarily based in the uh, San Francisco Health Department, which I think along with the New York Health Department people are among the most forward thinking in the country. Um, Hyman uh, uh, is from Chicago, I think fair to say helped raise his younger brother uh, on the south side. Uh, so Hyman, tell us about PrEP. You're gonna stay up here? Okay. Thank you, Paul. Um, and it was, so it was actually my younger sister, and she came to live with me during uh, intern year. And so I think Paul, she came to the hospital with me a bunch of times. She's a big volleyball player, even though she's 4'11". She was a good setter. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, prep um, and happy to take questions as well. So um, as Paul mentioned, I'm in San Francisco. So in addition to uh, these roles I have, I'm also the medical director of the uh, Strut Clinic, which is a sexual health clinic based in the Castro. We have about 3,500 people on uh, oral prep and um, just a handful on injectable prep. Um, I have no financial disclosures. Um, these are uh, the learning objectives, talk about the efficacy of our prep trials. Um, I'm gonna spend a little bit more time uh, on injectable cab um, and then uh, talk about a management of discord and HIV test results for patients who are on prep. So uh, I have a few ARS questions. Um, so this first one is a 31-year-old cisgender MSM with a zero-different relationship um, with an HIV-positive partner for two years. Um, his partner is only occasionally suppressed, um, so your patient will like to start PrEP. He has outside partners, which he refers to as guest stars, and reports that he uses meth almost daily. Um, he's on a uh, depression medication, which he has okay adherence to taking one to two days a week. So, would you give him oral TDF-FTC, oral TAF-FTC, on-demand TDF-FTC, or an injectable option? All right. More than half would offer Cab LA, um, and about 20% one of the daily oral options, and then um, on-demand TDF-FTC. So I, I'd say I'd probably agree with that. Um, I always say the best prep regimen is the one that somebody's going to use, so um, I would focus on what, what they would want to use. So um, now we have uh, updated guidance in the uh, CDC from the 2021 update um, that essentially said that PrEP should be offered to all sexually active adults, none of this figuring out what people are doing, um, talk about if someone is actually is having sex, then PrEP should be offered to them. And we have a menu now. So um, these are broken out by the populations in which they've been studied. Some of us make extrapolations. Um, for example, trans men have been systematically excluded from many of the studies, um, but we don't uh, exclude them from essentially oral uh, TDF-FTC. Um, so for, um, for 
what I'd like to focus on is each of the regimens. So for daily oral TDF-FTC, that's essentially uh, for all populations um, in the absence of uh, any severe renal disease, I would say creatinine clearance less than 60. Um, TAF-FTC is approved for individuals um, who um, uh, are exposed to HIV through sexual risk uh, with the exception of receptive vaginal sex um, and has not been studied for people who inject drugs, which was um, pertinent to the last discussion we had. On-demand PrEP, there's, uh, it's been primarily studied among, among cisgender men. Um, there were trans women included in the studies of uh, 211, which are predominantly in France and um, French-speaking Canada. Um, but when you look at the data, there are actually very few trans women who are enrolled in those studies. It's on order of five to 10. Um, but we still offer it uh, as an option, given that it's often exposure through rectal sex. We have no data on neovaginal exposure and what, uh, how 211 would uh, work for, for those women. Um, and then CAB-LA, which uh, I'll spend a little bit more time talking about, um, is again sort of got the broadest spectrum, um, except for people who inject drugs. Um, and to the point that was asked in the last um, presentation, a lot of the people who acquire HIV in our communities are through sexual exposure. So we do not exclude individuals who ha are uh, currently actively injecting uh, from injectable PrEP, if is what they want. Um, and daily oral PrEP, there's a lot of um, uh, discussions about how well it works. And if it works, these are just a, a slide from AVAC. Um, and just pointing that if you take it, it works quite well. Um, I'd like to point out the two dots at the uh, lower left, the blue, light blue and the dark blue that's closer to the line. Those were uh, the voice trials among women and looking at TDF-FTC where we actually saw a negative efficacy. Um, and so it, there were more infections in those who received uh, TDF-FTC. A lot of this is driven by adherence as we know, um, but there's a lot of data. There was some data presented at CROI, which I'm gonna highlight, that really uh, supports the idea that we should be offering oral TDF-FTC to cisgender women in the same way we offer it to cisgender men without all the caveats. So uh, Jeannie Marazzo presented these data from uh, demonstration projects, which looked at um, uh, a large number of uh, cisgender women from across the world and uh, looked at both objective and subjective um, measures of adherence. And they broke these into different categories. So those who are consistently daily, consistently high, those who started high but then declined later, and those that were persistently low. And they had a fairly large number of participants who were in each of these categories. Um, and then they looked at, based on these um, objective measures of adherence, what was the HIV incidence um, among those individuals. And uh, what they saw was that when people were taking it consistently uh, daily or consistently high, that HIV incidence was quite low. In the past, I think we have always said that uh, for cisgender women, for um, HIV prevention, taking it seven days a week is really essential. I think these data support that maybe there is more forgiveness to the daily regimens of TDF-FTC in the way we talk about it with men who have sex with men that are reflected in these data. So um, I think this is sort of supporting the idea of offering it and supporting women. There are few uh, HIV um, diagnoses in these analyses, but I think it is pointing us in a direction that's different than we had been in the past. And so I think there'll be more data uh, coming out about this that will hopefully support um, sort of continued messaging around uh, supporting cisgender women in uh, daily oral TDF-FTC. Um, CAB-LA is uh, superior to TDF-FTC in um, two large clinical trials, so HPTN-083, 
where the efficacy was 66% compared to daily oral TDF FTC. Um, and then in 084, which was a study of cisgender women um, in sub-Saharan Africa, where the efficacy was even higher, likely driven for both of these efficacy endpoints by lower adherence in the TDF FTC arm um, based on objective measures and DBS subsets. Um, at Croy, there was also uh, 08401 that was presented, which was among adolescent girls focused on safety to expand the indication to be inclusive of that population. Um, and there was no safety concerns, and individuals liked uh, having access to the injectable option for a variety of reasons, including privacy, ease of use, um, and not having to take a daily pill. Um, we also presented some data um, at CROI of a sub-analysis of HPTN 084 that looked at in the U.S. Black, uh, in the US MS, MSM population um, the incidence and efficacy among black MSM in the United States and transgender women, um, which accounted for about 50% of the um, population in that study. Um, and this data, I think, is both sobering and also enlightening. So in the arm in which they uh, received TDF-FTC, incidence was still 2.11%. That is a very high incidence in a population in a clinical trial that is, uh, has access to PrEP without cost. Um, and so there are 15 infections in that group, and there was four infections in the CAB-LA arm. Um, and so there was a, a, a very large difference, um, you know, 72% risk reduction in, uh, in acquisition in that population. When we looked at the non-black U.S. population um, in this study, um, there were five infections, so starting out in a PrEP population. This is sort of what I think we're starting to see in, in demonstration projects, this incidence of about 0.63. In the CAB-LA arm, there were zero infections for a hazard ratio uh, that was 0 0.086. But I really think that this highlights that we see these massive disparities in uh, HIV in the U.S. among black MSM and transgender women, and that this tool might really have a, a really important role in trying to address some of those disparities. There's a bunch of issues with CAB-LA that are uh, structural, which I'll talk a little bit about, um, but as far as whether or not this works and can work in the way that we want it to for equity, I think that this is a, a tremendous uh, opportunity for us to use it. Um, then other, the, the menu of PrEP options is expanding. Some of these things are moving forward and some are not. Um, there, was a, um, there was a presentation of a drug-eluting device uh, at Croy that uh, can elute over the course of potentially six months or more and can stay in the body and be refilled for as up to 20 years. Um, Islatravir, um, as a PrEP agent, is uh, no longer moving forward. Hopefully we'll have an alternative. Um, and we have... Um, uh, lenacapavir, which is in a phase three uh, trial, which is ongoing, so hopefully uh, we'll have some of those data as well. We learned quite a few lessons from uh, PrEP, uh, oral PrEP uh, implementation, um, and that even with this data about how well it works, um, in the U.S., only about a quarter of the individuals who have an indication for PrEP are um, taking PrEP, and that we have these massive racial, ethnic, and gender disparities both in who starts PrEP and then who stays on PrEP. Um, so these are some data from our primary care clinics in San Francisco, which show that black uh, patients were more, less likely to stay on PrEP um, and were to discontinue uh, earlier than other racial ethnic groups um, in, our, um, in our clinics. And we know that the incidence goes up quite quickly once someone stops PrEP. Um, we've learned a lot of uh, we've learned a lot about the challenges. So what I wanted to highlight um, from this slide is just that 
when we're doing prep, you realize how much how much uh, changes we need. So around staff awareness. So for those of you who are doing um, prepping your clinics, you know our our patients encounter not only us in their clinical flow, but they also encounter the front desk staff and the nursing staff. Um, and so having staff that are saying that we don't do prep here is problematic, even if you are pushing it um, as an option for someone to to take. And that's something that we've seen quite a bit. Um, uh, particularly for Cab LA, there's a, a heavier lift on what the clinics need to be able to do to implement. So having the capacity to do that um, and then having providers who are willing to offer it. Um, and then we underestimate as providers the financial implications of PrEP, um, particularly when individuals go to the pharmacy and are told they have a huge copay. And then their decision is just to not pick it up and not to tell us. So I've had three uh, HIV, new HIV patients come in who have told me that story in San Francisco where PrEP is quite ubiquitous and quite easy to get, but it's still a challenge and, um, and a threat to our efforts to sort of end the epidemic both uh, locally and nationally. And people are really interested in these non-daily options. We had the first data on daily PrEP, but people want other things. Um, and I think contraception has given us insights into this, and so leveraging some of what we've learned from contraception. You know, in this Australian study of PrEP experience MSM, the majority uh, preferred a long-acting agent, um, up to 60%. Um, and in the U.S., it was slightly less. But in this study in the U.S., where long-acting injectables were at 25%, um, when you looked at those who reported condomless receptive anal sex, it was actually the long-acting injectables that had the majority of interest. So thinking about matching people's interest with the risk that they are reporting, I think is gonna be a really important part um, of how we roll these uh, options out and how we make them available um, when, we, uh, when we finally have access to them. This is true for women as well. And so this was a study uh, from an HPTN 076 study, which showed again that there's a lot of interest in these long-acting agents um, and that, um, that individuals are more likely to take what they, uh, when they're given a choice, they're more likely to take what they're uh, prescribed. So this was a study uh, from the MTN 034, where uh, they moved from a ring to oral prep. And then after the initial phase of the study, they gave the women a choice about what they wanted. And when their uh, product matched their choice, they're more likely to take it, which seems quite intuitive, but I think really getting to this point of offering it and providing tools for people to make decisions and then helping them stay on it um, is gonna be really important as we have this um, expanding menu of options. Um, these are some of the ways that I think about these options. So for uh, TDF and uh, TAF FTC versus Cab LA, so uh, some of the pros of the oral medications are really about um, implementation, um, access. Uh, now that TDF-FTC is generic, it's quite cheap. Through 340B pricing, some of our clinics can get it for as cheap as $4 a bottle. Um, so it's cheaper than a lot of our STI screening that we're doing and some of our HIV testing. Um, there's quarterly testing um, that's required. Um, it can, you can do rap use rapid testing to monitor people on it. Um, and then it uh, does require daily adherence or a complex 211 regimen. Um, so that is probably the biggest downside. For Cab LA, I think efficacy is uh, one of the biggest pros, but I also point out that efficacy is not the uh, criteria that a lot of our patients use uh, for deciding what works best for them. And so even though um, this worked better than TDF-FTC, it might not be better for our uh, patients. 
Um, doesn't require daily adherence, um, but it does require more clinic time. So having staff and space to be able to, to do the testing. And then we really don't understand why these uh, breakthrough infections occurred in the trials, um, despite uh, uh, high levels of adherence on time injections and PK that would have suggested that those individuals should have uh, been protected. And we didn't see that in our uh, TDF-FTC trials. Um, and so it's still really an open question. Um, and I, I also like to highlight in 083 where there were these subgroup analyses that you know, cab LA was associated with lower incidence among all the populations that we have in the United States, in particular, where we're seeing high HIV incidence and large levels of disparities. Um, so this is uh, sort of reiterating the idea that this is a really important tool for the populations um, that we most want to get uh, prevention to. And then there's some uh, clinical considerations. So for HIV testing, um, point of care testing um, in healthcare sites, viral load testing is expensive. And um, in some of our primary care clinics in San Francisco, we actually uh, struggle with getting it done for the courier reasons. Um, you need more staff and more places to be able to do the injections. Um, most places are not able to do same-day starts, I think mostly because of the financing aspect of it. Um, but it really doesn't allow you to streamline in the same way we can do with oral prep. Um, and then how do you cover missed injections? I have a couple of slides that sort of outline what I, what we're doing for missed injections. It, it sort of differs from what the FDA label and package insert suggest. Um, but also what do you do with PEP regimens if someone misses a dose and has an exposure um, and uh, you want to manage uh, that potential exposure for HIV? Um, this is a, uh, this is a list of all the pharmacies that um, do buy and bill in the medical or pharmacy benefit for Cab LA. Um, so as I mentioned, TDF-FTC is about $4 a bottle, whereas Cab LA uh, is $3,700 per shot. Um, and so there's a lot of um, insurance companies that are pushing away from this, uh, requiring prior authorizations um, and just outright denying it. I think the other aspect of this is that for those of us who either work or collaborate with community-based clinical sites that are not in network, then there becomes additional out-of-network cost for individuals who are on an HMO. And so even though it might be covered in an in-network provider, if that provider is not offering this option, then you can't use it outside of that network. So that's come up a lot with our patients um, who are trying to access it. There are some assistance programs. Um, we're pushing the uh, manufacturer to raise this to $9,000 seems to be the magic number in California for out-of-network costs. So we're trying to um, let, we're trying to lobby to, to get um, that amount covered for out-of-pocket expenses so that we can expand access. So um, missed doses come up quite a bit because uh, we saw this actually in 083 quite frequently. Um, we had a young mobile population, and this is even before COVID, um, people would, would miss their doses. So the FDA label um, distinguishes individuals who have a planned and unplanned missed dose and um, suggests covering that with oral cab um, if it's less uh, for up to two months. Um, and then if it's unplanned, um, regardless of whether or not it's um, four weeks or more, I think four weeks cutoff is really an important number. In 083, we actually used eight weeks, so it wasn't late um, if somebody up to eight weeks after it was due. Um, and then uh, reinitiating with a loading dose. So what we actually do is we don't care if it's planned or unplanned. If it's missed, it's missed. 
but if it's less than four weeks, we actually don't consider it as a missed uh, injection. And so uh, there's a four-week buffer for individuals. So one week before it's due and then up to four weeks afterwards to give people flexibility so that we're not having them come in and get reloaded or uh, sort of undermining by uh, asking to take other oral pills when we're identifying people who might have trouble with oral pills. Um, and so we just say if it's less than four weeks, it's not late. You just have a, come in at a different time. If it's more than four weeks, then we reload individuals. And we give everyone a TDF FTC or a oral cab for them to take, for example, if they're traveling or something and they need to cover um, doses. And we ask them to just take that um, immediately after um, they miss their dose. And if they're traveling and have an exposure and they have TDF FTC, we actually instruct them to just start that um, as a PEP regimen so that they can come in and get, and get tested. So happy to take questions about that. Um, the other uh, piece, we talked a little bit about this, is the PK of CAB is quite different um, in uh, people who are assigned male at birth versus female at birth. So it has this very long tail, as, uh, as many of you are aware, um, but it's, it's actually quite longer, up to six months longer among um, uh, people who are assigned female at birth. So we had some discussions, actually, during one of the breaks about you know, the implications for this during pregnancy if somebody were to become pregnant. Um, and were to continue on um, CAB-LA, both for HIV prevention or were to stop, and what the implications that would that be for both pregnancy but also for uh, breastfeeding or chest feeding um, of an infant after um, someone has received CAB-LA. So uh, it lasts a very long time in the body, um, and there are people who have detectable um, doses, if you look at those ranges, up to 52 months after they stopped injection, so um, it can be in the body quite a long time. Um, so how do we talk about discontinuing? So really talk about covering and the declining uh, CAB levels. Um, we counsel people about ongoing risk for uh, and indications for PrEP because we do see this high incidence of people who discontinue PrEP. Um, so we, uh, we usually prescribe daily oral TDF-FTC after the point at which they're sort of no longer protected. Um, CDC guidelines recommend uh, quarterly RNA testing for a year after discontinuation. I will say in the studies 083 and 084, in which there were quite a few in, uh, infections that occurred among people who had discontinued or missed injections, we didn't see uh, CAB resistance in those individuals. It really occurred when people received their uh, injections and had an unrecognized HIV infection. So we really focused on the tail, but the tail didn't represent the bigger problem I think we identified in the trial. It was people who had these unrecognized infections um, before uh, we gave them their next dose. And, that, and in that study, there was viral load testing was done retrospectively, which is why the recommendations now are to do RNA testing. Um, and, and by giving those injections, we really delayed seroconversion substantially. Um, and so it was about um, 98 days in incident cases. So this is about three months. Um, so it could potentially have gotten one or two additional injections. Um, and in baseline cases, it was up to, um, to two months for our, uh, the cab arm. Um, and this really wasn't something that we saw substantially delayed in the TDF-FTC arm. Um, and that, as, as I mentioned, the, the major resistance were detected um, usually in cases where we continue to give injections without recognizing that somebody was HIV infected. At Croy this year, um, Sue Eshelman presented on uh, the new syndrome that is uh, called Levi syndrome, 
Um, so it's long-acting early viral inhibition, and she outlined in comparison to acute HIV infection. And so essentially the uh, major differences are this is a long, smoldering, difficult to detect uh, infection versus a sort of explosive um, acute HIV infection that um, can occur. And this was in one of the panel cases as well. It looked more like an AHI, um, which for me is suggests you know, lack of adherence. Um, but in Levi, it really is difficult and using an RNA assay um, and using a different um, uh, assay with the lowest uh, feasibly uh, feasible viral load that you can implement, I think is most important. Um, and then another component of this is that you do have variations in the antibody response. So there might, people, there might be uh, cases where you sero-revert um, between uh, tests, and so this can be uh, quite difficult um, to, to identify. All right, so we have a, um, another ARS question. Um, so this is a 35-year-old MSM in a zero-different relationship, comes in seeking PrEP. Um, he states his virals, his uh, Spartan has been unsuppressed and just started a new regimen um, because he thinks he said there was something about M184V that required it. So he doesn't like condoms, they're not an option. So um, what would you suggest? Condoms uh, until the partner is virus suppressed, TDF, FTC, TAF, FTC, three drug PEP. Um, he reports sex with the partner two days ago uh, and there's something else. So yeah, so I think the majority of individuals uh, suggested uh, three-drug PEP, and that's generally what I would agree with. Um, and we often do a PEP to PrEP uh, transition, and it's one of the points we uh, make uh, with our fellows when we're teaching them about PEP is not to forget about the option, or talking to them about PrEP is not to forget that PEP indications are often present for our patients um, at the time of PrEP initiation. Um, and um, we do want to try to make sure we cover individuals. This is a summary of uh, PrEP breakthrough infections um, that have been reported. And this is actually what I use when I'm counseling my patients is that, you know, oral PrEP, if that's your choice, works really, really well. Um, that there are breakthrough cases, nothing is 100%, um, but it is case reportable. So these are some of the case reports that uh, came through with PrEP breakthroughs in oral TDF-FTC. And one of the common themes is the M184V. Um, so it is something that if uh, there is a partner um, who has a known uh, M184V and that's the only partner, which is often not the case, to be honest, um, that in, uh, in, if the partner is not virally suppressed, then we might use a three-drug regimen or use CAB-LA in that setting. Um, and then also just uh, the U equals U and keeping in mind for all of our patients, if they're guest stars who are present in their sex lives, that we need to cover them for all of the potential exposures they might have. All right, so I think this is the last ARS question. Um, so this is a 31-year-old patient who comes in for a routine uh, quarterly lab test or an oral prep. The fourth gen antibody test is positive 
but the confirmatory test and the viral load are negative. So what would you do? Would you repeat the test but continue prep um, as you assume it's a false positive? You repeat the test and stop prep um, but start ART for acute HIV infection. Um, you repeat the test and stop prep until you can determine what their status is or something else. threshold. All right, so, oh, this is great. Okay, so 40% uh, assume that the fourth gen test is uh, false positive. 34% um, would uh, repeat the test and stop prep. Um, and, well, it keeps changing on me. Uh, and then 18% uh, would repeat the test and stop prep. Okay, great. So I don't know that there's a, a specific answer. It's just a, um, or I, I have an answer that I would uh, probably prefer, um, and I'll talk through how we make those decisions or how I approach those decisions. So this is just a reminder that um, early on you're going to see a viral um, uh, spike, and then you're going to sort of get progressive antibody responses in the setting of acute HIV. Um, and so how do you think about like what you do when you get this result? So we have our quarterly or now um, bi-monthly testing in the setting of CAB-LA, and you get a discrepant HIV test result. Um, so your goals are really to determine if this is a true infection or a false positive. And just a reminder, viral load tests have a higher false positive rate than antibody tests. Um, so we might, you might be in this position more with CAB-LA. Um, so you confirm the presence or absence of infection, repeat the serologic RNA test, um, and then a key point is try to use a test, if possible, from another manufacturer or um, a different type of test so you can see if you get the same result across two different platforms. Um, and then you have to decide what you're going to do with the antiretrovirals. So you have uh, three options. You can continue the prep uh, if you think that they're adherent and it's a false positive. You can, uh, you can stop uh, prep and reassess their HIV status, or you can start ART. Um, so you, if you continue PrEP and they're adherent, um, and they actually do have HIV, you're gonna risk uh, resistance, of course. But if you stop PrEP and they, um, it might allow you to reassess their HIV status, but if they have ongoing risk, they might actually acquire HIV during that period in which you stop it. So it is not without its risks, um, even around um, assessing HIV status, so it's really important to um, engage your patients in if you decide to do that. I sort of consider that a structured treatment interruption, and y'all would approach it with the same care as you would do with uh, patients living with HIV. Um, and then for if you start ART, um, if they're not adherent, you might have more difficulty deciding and figuring out if somebody um, actually has HIV. Um, and so those are some of the options and the um, associated challenges with them. I think the drug-related uh, AEs with starting ART are less of an issue now with our regimens. Um, and um, if you need help, there is a PEP line, uh, the PrEP line, which was started through the clinician consulting um, service. And so this is their number. Um, I'm one of the providers who's on the line, but it, we get some really interesting cases from clinicians and are always happy to talk through um, how to approach uh, managing them. So I'm just going to 
stop there and thank you for your attention. I'm happy to take any questions. So uh, uh, super, and I liked how you kind of were going a little bit into pep at the end because that'll that's an anticipation of the of the next talk. Yeah. Um, while I was sitting here, I was kind of working with or playing with this tablet that we have to ask questions. No one's using it, uh, but <laughs> I asked a question. I said, "Is TAF better than TDF and prep?" I, you know, just to put something on the on the screen. Spellcheck said, is TAD better than tofu in prep? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything's better than tofu in prep. Um, but the, the Levi thing reminds me that I heard a talk just last week that Bob Gallo, remember him, mm -hmm. uh, gave where he's speculating. Steve Deek said he agreed with it, which makes me worry because Steve likes to be contrarian. Um, that uh, elite controller is not a specific thing, it's just a function of dose of infection. Mm. Um, and, and it strikes me that maybe, if that's at all true, that these cases of infection while on PrEP might reduce the dose long enough that these people might end up having kind of the equivalent of, of an elite controller. I, I don't think there's any data, but if you want to comment, it'd be... Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that there is... Um clearly law, still uh, ongoing replication because a lot of these individuals acquire new mutations and insti specific mutations. So I, I think, yes, that might be true. And if we are, if there are ongoing risks for HIV, then we're still, and they want an agent to, you know, we don't know what their HIV status right, and they continue right. to get antiretrovirals. They're going to just develop more and more resistance. So, you know, I think that they might, we didn't do like there was no uh, structured treatment interruption for those individuals. You know, I think that might be a sub-study that might sort of evaluate to see what type of viral rebound they would have if you stopped therapy. Right, right. Um, they did, we did that in the AMP study um, to look if it changed the viral set point and made individuals more like elite controllers. So I, I think it's an interesting question and it would be um, an opportunity to do that prospectively, but. And then you mentioned the, the, the one risk of stopping while you're kind of sorting out what might, which might be a false positive test result uh, is that the person might, if you stopped uh, PrEP, you might acquire HIV. Mm -hmm. But the other risk, I guess, would be if it's really like an ATI and they actually are infected, then during that time they might actually rebound and transmit the virus too as another uh, risk to be considered mm -hmm. and discussed with the with a patient. But. Absolutely. I mean, if they have acute HIV and have a viral load that spikes to, right. you know, 500,000 or a million, there's, there's an onward transmission. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think from the counseling standpoint, I think bringing in partners, but starting with their health and what it might mean for them, um, and then including the partners and the risk to their partners as well. Yeah, but I mean, I absolutely. Think one, of, one of the themes today has been kind of being overly attentive to including mm -hmm. people that are involved in the decisions that we sometimes... Yeah think we're making for people. But yeah. Yeah. So a question about low-level uh, viremia while on uh, ART. Uh, what, you know, we think we have a sense that high viremia translates into high risk of transmission. Low equals low. Mm -hmm. um, what about those people with very low levels of viremia? What do you tell them about their risk of transmitting? Does that come into your consideration with, uh, with some of these approaches? 
Yeah, so if they have a partner who's um, like at a blip or a viral load that's less than 200, I sort of use the data um, and um, talk to individuals about the risk of acquiring HIV from their partner. Um, and, you know, I think some of the epi data we've seen prior to sort of U equals U is about 30% of HIV acquisitions come in the setting of primary relationships. So really understanding if individuals have you know, other people who are involved. Um, and there were a lot of infections that occurred in these trials. They just didn't come from the primary partner who was right. virally suppressed. So when I was sitting over there, I, I was kind of helping men monitor somebody standing at that microphone. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, hard to but see when you stand up here, it actually is hard to notice. So yeah, uh, yeah at the mic. And, and a reminder, to feel free to use the microphones, yeah. So I do a lot of pet prep and HIV care for youth age 13 to 24. I have a lot of my patients that are, have a lot of needophobia and are ambivalent to do apertude at this time. So for my patients that are on the younger spectrum, are we concerned really about that bone mineral density with the TDF-FTC for the patients that can't take other options because they're assigned sex at birth? Yeah, we get that question a lot. So, um, you know, the bone uh, deposition sort of ends around age 25, and so we really don't know um, if and to what extent it matters if there's a slight decrease in uh, bone mineral density in the setting of TDF-FTC. Um, you know, we've uh, it becomes an informed choice that individual would make. Like, if someone acquires HIV and goes on HIV therapy, you know, we're going to be also potentially exposing them to, to one of those medications. So, um, you know, and I also think it's important to, to think about, you know, these DEXA scans were not designed to be looking at bone mineral density in 17-year-olds. Um, and so there are some limitations both in our assessments. Um, so we take the approach of offering it and sort of making the calculation that acquiring HIV would be a more risk to their health than potential um, bone mineral density changes um, where there has not been association with increased risk of fracture, even if we see a decreased bone mineral density in the DEXA scans. Yeah, a lot of my colleagues are starting to um, provide like vitamin D supplementation to these patients just to give them like another piece of reassurance. Just in case. Just yeah. in yeah. case. Um, but it's just something that's come up because at least in our area, we're seeing a lot more commercials. If you've been exposed to the drug Truvada, you know, the bone mineral yeah. density and those type of things. So I think we have that fear from the patient, you know, do I take something that can possibly damage me? You know, it, it's, it's a really tough case that we're dealing with with a lot of our youth that are still a little bit ambivalent about the aptitude. Yeah, and you know, I think if you have access to TAF FTC, like I think Paul was asking, if, you know, he put into his is that chat <laughs> GPT. Um, but you know, um, that's another reason where I would sort of offer something else because honestly, if people are if that's what they're telling you, like I worry that even if they say yes now, it might impact their ability or desire to continue it. Um, so I, I try to roll with that and offer them things that they would really want and would allay their fears about it because it is something that for the extent of period in which they're at risk for acquiring HIV, we sort of really want people to use those options um, and sort of matching it with what they are saying that they want. Thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, really quick, given the time, um, is lower efficacy of uh, uh, TDF-FTC versus uh, LACAB just a function of adherence? Is there something inherent about the medications? Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's anything inherent. I, I do think it's, it's likely driven by adherence. Um, 
and that the fact that adherence was so much higher if you look at the um, adherence to on-time injections versus sort of the dry blood spot sam uh, subsample that was in those studies, you know, at overall it was about 74% for TDF-FTC, where it was over 90% for CAB-LA. So I really do think, I don't think we have any um, pharmacokinetic data that would suggest why that would be worse. Um, and then finally, um, can daily uh, uh, be done, or, or on demand be done, with the SCOVI, um, the, the mm -hmm. uh, TAF uh, ver version, um, and what about in cisgenders? Yeah. In cisgender yeah. women yeah. or men? Cisgender women? <laughs> there is a, Both. There is, yeah, okay, Either. fair. <laughs> um, so there are no data looking at, uh, clinical data looking at uh, on-demand or 211 with TAF-FTC. I think the PK uh, data suggests that, um, that it should work. Um, and so there are scenarios where we might offer it to individuals if that is really the only thing that they really want to use for prevention. But we, uh, it's a data-free zone. Um, the PK yep. would yep. be supportive. Um, and then TAF-FTC for receptive um, vaginal sex, those studies are being done. Um, and hopefully we'll have those data. I think the FDA was um, uh, critical of the application because it did not include cisgender women, um, and I think that that statement of except for receptive vaginal sex was a reflection of that critique of the studies. Great, great. And as I understand things, by the way, uh, FDA today is looking at uh, Paxlovid um, approval, mm -hmm. so stay tuned to the news tonight. Thanks, uh, thanks, Hyman, so much. Great, thank you.